Welcome to True House Stories. I am yeah. Lemmy Fontana for a special weekend edition. I broke the news a week and a half ago. I pulled him aside. I said, yo, bro, I need you on the show, baby. He said, let's do it. So here's a guy that's a house gangster. I'm not talking mafioso. I'm talking house original gangster. When they used to wear their hats to the side, there was, there was Armand and all these guys that, you know, they had that sound. It was rough. You know, where you got Frankie Knuckles with the beautiful sound. Now you got the gangster sound, more the darker sound, more the banging disco beats, rougher, tougher, stronger, harder, longer. He even had success working with Daft Punk, which is pretty freaking amazing. And Daft Punk, you know, they're pretty well respected, overground and underground. All right. The boy house of Chicago. He's a Puerto Rican brother. It's like, you know, when they say, yo, yeah, Sosa, where the yayo, man? This is where we go to for the yayo. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, you know, it's like in the movie Scarface. I never crossed you, Sosa. I never crossed you. <laughs> never crossed me. Man. I never crossed you. So I like to welcome one of our brothers from the house music scene. He ran a record label store. He was part of the record industry for a long time before he became the big DJ. You all know him. He actually sold records to all the guys and he was part of retail. He was part of it all. And that's on the real. He's done a lot of remixes, a lot of productions. The man is well-respected, can be controversial at times, but that's what makes him who he is. And on that note, we all like to welcome from True House Stories, a special weekend edition with my man, DJ Sneak. Let the dogs loose. So thank you, brother, for doing this. Yeah. I appreciate, you know, there's a lot that's going on. But before we get into the controversy, controversial parts of what you're gonna discuss, we do this with everyone. And I'm the first question I have to ask. You know, the young Sosa, the young kid, how does music find you, brother? Where does it find you? Where, you know, like you're in grade school. What was your initial thing? What was the landscape? Give us a kind of division of your, your eyes. What was going on? Well, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. What town? And Arecibo. Oh, wow. The big, the big uh, uh, the, what do you call it? It just took that shit down. Anyway, I was born, raised there, and around 13 years old, my, my parents decided to go to Chicago. Most Puerto Ricans go to New York, but we decided to go to Chicago. Moved there, never seen snow, never seen big city, whatever. End up in school, get to the system. And in the first, I would say, week and a half, of me being there and being snowed in in Chicago, not speaking even English, the only thing I went to was the radio. And Chicago radio had a lot of great, amazing music, including a lot of mix shows by the original pioneers of Chicago house there. Farley Jackmaster Funk, Steve Hurley, all these guys were on the radio. The Hot Mix 5, Rafael Rosario, who's one of my favorites, man. Like, I, I saw Rafael as like, wow, he's a Puerto Rican guy do, 
doing this shit and being a DJ too, making music, you know? Um, that's how I found it. I found it on the radio first. And then as you, you know, go through school, I did eight. Then I went to high school and then in high school, everybody was, you know, I was a graffiti writer too. I became a graffiti writer. I used to draw and stuff, but then I got into graffiti and then through graffiti, you found music. And first time I saw a DJ was at a school dance. <laughs> and, uh, and I sat there like a little dummy, just asking them questions. Like, how do you do this? What are you doing there? Because I had been recording tapes and trying to figure out how music went from one end to another 55 minutes before the five minutes commercial flip over to the next DJ. And he explained it, man. And after that, I was caught. I was caught. I started buying records before I even had turntables. Wow. So that was, you say, the high school dance then? At a, at a, yeah, I used to go to Roberto Clemente Community Academy, right on Division and Western. I lived like a block away from that high school, man. And it was, had eight floors. It was really modern high school. It could hold up to 8,000 kids in, Jeez, in high school. Christ, that's a big school, bro. It had escalators in between floors. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's like a department store of, of high school. Yeah. I mean, it was ghetto and shit because we were in the ghetto, but it was it was very modern compared to the old high schools because they were all just old institutions, you know, old high schools and shit, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, there, man, we... If the if the if the baseball team won, they would do a school dance. If the if the football team won and some sort of city shit, we would do a school dance. So then, that's how I got to see what a DJ was and experience wow. music, man. Because no. I didn't know I, I only knew salsa merengue and old shit. You know what I mean? I never heard house music until I got to Chicago, man. Yeah, being from Puerto Rico, I would think you'd be, well, even Charanga by that point. Yeah, well, Charanga would still be hot at, in, in Puerto Rico, but not really. It's, that was old. Yeah, I was born in 1970, and from 70 to 80, Fania All Stars, bro. Fania. I lived that. I lived that life forever. I can, I can play every song from it. You know what I mean? And then, you know, Chicago brought everything disco, house, electro, uh, breakdancing music, whatever, you know? Like, that's why I learned music. You so know? so here's the question. Do you have any musical training instrument-wise? No. I played, a, I played a little bit of uh, clarinet in high school. Okay. Just to but pass you still, a class. Have, you still just did it for the class, right? Just for the class, just for the credit. <laughs> I wasn't that good at it, but I was really good with beats always and things like that. I was really on, a, on it you know, with, with stuff. And I mean, house music really just drew my attention. And I just, I drank the juice that is still with me today. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know. That's it, bro. You know. So wait, wait. So you should have been a drummer then if you're a beats guy. But that's when my drums are popping in my tracks, bro. I mean, that's one of my trademarks. It's okay. like, you know what I mean? Like, and a, a combination of electronic with Latin beats, you know? I learned that from Rafi's 606 and 626 era. You know what I mean? From my other homeboy, uh, Rico Pizarro. Remember Pizarro? Yeah. He, he, was, he had two 606 and 626 
by Roland, and man, he used all those Latin drums and that shit, and it was amazing. You can make house music beautiful. Okay, so here we go. Where does this begin for you as far as DJing? Does it, is it the DJ that becomes first, or do you get the job in the store first? Like, you got to give us, walk us down the high school ends. Where are you going? I mean, I before, by 16, I was already DJing block parties, house parties, church parties, high school parties. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, wait, you, wait, you in a suit doing a wedding, too? Uh, that came a little bit later. Okay. Could you imagine if I sneak with knowing how he dresses me in a suit coming to your wedding? Yeah, to I, do? I, I would I would do the, the long button-up shirt. That was about it, man. I couldn't wear no suit. You had no monkey suit on, bro? You couldn't put the suit on with the suit? Muslim weddings I was playing was Mexican weddings and Latin weddings, so it was all very casual, you know what I'm saying? So it was cool. Anyway, it was that. You know, it was a start from the ground up. That's the way to do it, though. You have to start somewhere. You can't. I only do it one way. That was the way it was like, yo, get one turntable and mix it another turntable, a couple of speakers and an amp, and you're you're on. You know what I mean? And that was the movement for years. That gave me training to later on in my twenties or whatever get into wedding wedding DJ because I, I worked. I started working at record stores too, small ones around Chicago, until I got to. The hip house, which I've worked at four and a half years, people just knew me as Carlos from the hip house. I'm also a graffiti writer and an airbrush artist, so I was painting T-shirts for people the whole time I was there. That was my side money. I would airbrush DJs' names and hearts with shit, you know, like that. That's who I was too, man, for years. That was more training, you know. But through that, I learned the retail business. I sold. The first bad boy bill mixtapes there were. You know what I mean? I saw the birth of a lot of things that that mattered to an industry that was growing. Not just vinyl, man. Well, oh, you know, people don't realize that with all of us. They don't realize that there's a there was a thing before you became the man sneak, the DJ that people saw you traveling. There's a whole story that happened free to yeah. all that. Yeah, I mean, I had I have I had passion, and through passion, I got to DJing when people said, there's a million DJs, why are you gonna make it? You know what I mean? It's very competitive in Chicago. And plus, at the time I grew up, it was gangs too, so you had to deal with that shit too. So, it was, so what do you mean gangs? In the sense of competing gangs in, in the music side or gangs on the street? Both, man, both, both. There was the gangs in the street, but sometimes, I mean, not sometimes, I used to play a place called Centrum Hall and fucking on Ashland and whatever. It was 45 minutes and 50 bucks and a dime bag of weed, bro. That's what I played for. 45 minutes. 45 minutes. That's it, a 45 minutes set. That's it. The next DJ was waiting with his records already fucking lined up, yo. And the biggest DJ at that time was Bad Boy Bill. Right. You know, he was like the radio guy that was doing five, six parties in the city, play one hour, go to the next location, play another hour like that. He would do that all night. So anyway, that keeps going. That, you know, working in record stores and with retail gave me the knowledge of who I needed to contact if I when I wanted to do a label because I was like, I, you know, I got into making music. Then 
after searching for people to put out and people are like, yeah, you know, it's cool. I decided, well, I can just print my own record. And I did. Define records number what one. Was the first, what, was the first, what was that first record you printed and made? It was the first label I made called Define Records, and it was in 1990. And it was called Sneaky Tracks. And it had two tracks. And it has story, too. I, I made it at home. I mixed it down at Bad Boy Bell Studio. He liked it. We cut a, an acetate. He played it one month before I received the records. I got like test press and then I gave him a couple. He played it the whole month, maybe five weeks before I got the actual physical. Right. And I drove around Chicago and all the flea markets and all the stores. I sold 1,500 copies in one weekend, bro. From, the, from your car? Pay on the lid. So you did what they call the POD. Open the trunk. You want 50 pieces? Give me this amount of money, right? That's it. Or, you, know, you don't realize, you don't know invoice. Right. Here's the invoice. I'll be back next week to collect because I know you're going to sell out. And then they would take 30 copies, 50 copies. Some people were generous. Some people knew me as Carlos from the hip house who sold records and music. And I was very good at it, man. So all the stores respected me as a salesperson and somebody that there was competition. Well, we called each other and we said, hey, you know, this fucking record is blah, blah, blah. Here, man, here's the number. Or or I got it from this distributor. Go to them. They have it. Yeah, back in the day, one did that. But, you know, ultimately, the person they care about the music and the sales and all that shit, too, they wanted that information. So you share that shit, man. So I earned respect on that level. I used to go to Barney's Distribution in Chicago, pick up all the dance minion shit. I used to travel because this store was on the northwest side, almost a suburb. And I would go to the hood to pick up Dance Minion records. And my Chevy beat up Chevy Nova hatchback. I would leave my windows open. It had no stereo. There was nothing to steal on that shit. Just <laughs> take, it up. take it. Put the records in the back. Drive back to the fucking store, you know. So I did a lot of that shit, man. I have a lot of retail experience and through that shit, I built a lot of love and passion through it, man. I've been through a lot of the first things that made a difference in this industry that we call house music. Then it became something else, which you'll get to later. Yeah, but we'll talk about that later. We've got to get, get yeah, into the picture. We've got to paint the picture. If you don't paint this picture, nobody will understand why you're saying what you're saying. And I need you to paint the picture clearly and what your background yeah. is. You know? So check it. At that four-year stint, one of the people that I worked for straight up told me to my face that I would never be shit, and I was challenged. And I was like, cool, you know what? I quit. I'll see you later. By then, I had my music equipment. And that whole summer, all I did was party, do drugs like ecstasy and fucking weed, mushrooms, nothing past that not going to lie, and made tracks every fucking day, man. Every day I was on it, like church. I wake up 10 o'clock to 7 or 8 o'clock till my mom finished cooking food. I could smell the rice and beans, and I'd be like, yes, time to go eat. Get some more weed. 
head out, be out the whole night. Like I was wilding out because I was, you know, I happened to be single at that time and and I was growing, man. I was in my 20s, but I was going to parties, meeting people, making bond with people like Derek Carter and Mark Farina and people that like, you know, made a lot of uh, influence in my my DJ career, man. And uh, and I built from there, you know. I ended up at Gramophone Records as a part-time just so I can pick up my records still and get a good price and shit. But I love that store too. I had a lot of respect for Gramophone. I went there and uh, I worked maybe three, two years before my career really took off because all those tracks that I had been doing that summer slowly were being dished out, large records. Casual, really. Casual really was the one that opened the door. Casual really. Yeah. After that, I got like a bunch of people. Even Glad when Gladys called me from Strictly, I was like, my mom said, There's some lady, there's some lady, her name is Gladys. She's calling you from a label. And I pick up the phone, I was like, Gladys, Gladys Pissarro. And I was like, shitting my pants, bro. I was like, but but people don't understand that, how incredible that phone call is. They don't get it. How amazing that phone call is when a big label calls you. It's like, whoa. And that came after I had met Kenny and Louie at Gramophone. They were in town. And I met Johnny, and uh, I, it was Johnny and Kenny, actually. Johnny D. Johnny D? From Henry Street. And Johnny was, D. Henry Street. Like, I was like, dude, I showed him his section of Henry Street in the store. All right. I was like, this is my side right here. I said, you know how many are my men held in, uh, what is it? Uh, old school junkie records I sold or how many of these? And he's like, really? I was like, dude, a hundred copies on a weekend sometimes. So then I was a good salesperson, man. I didn't mess around. I, I can sell records, bro. And, you know, I was like, you know, I got tracks. Can I send you some shit? I send him a dot with some demos like a week later, man. And he signed my shit on Henry Street, and that record opened a lot more doors, including. Now, which record? So, what was the record that Johnny D signed? It was a polyester EP. Show me the way it was the track. Uh, it had five tracks and uh, or four tracks actually. All disco house stuff, you know. I was doing kind of relief records, which is like ghetto banging house, Chicago booty shit, and then I started doing more disco house, uh, influenced by Todd and. A lot of New York guys, Tommy Musto, Ken, No Ricardo, Mike Delgado, all these guys had influence, you know what I mean? So I, I sold so many other records to the store that I felt like I knew Todd Terry before I met Todd. Right. When I met Todd, I was like, wow, holy shit, there he is. <laughs> but I had sold like hundreds of his records, man. Same with Armand. We started hanging out. And shit, when he dropped Witch Doctor, I got into trouble because I ordered 150 copies from Strictly. And the story's like, we never order 150 copies of a record. <laughs> and I told my boss, Joe, I said, on oh my word, I will have every person buying this record this weekend. Four or five days later, I sold all of them, dude. That's, that's called, that's what I'm talking about. You know, I, I I was a graffiti writer. I had the little cards with the graffiti and the name and the fucking price of shit. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, I push, I push. I, I understood music in another level, man. Right. And respect for it is what's keeping me going. This is why I fight so much, because I have pride. Hey, you know what? If I went black and white, something's going on my camera, but we're okay. Um, yeah. You know, that's I, we know that. That's why, that's why you needed to to tell everyone the you know the background story because you know people by the way judge on what they read and the bullshit they don't they don't really see it for what it truly is at times you know and hey man you know, you know wait, let me explain something before you say you imagine a record shop never taking 150 pieces they must have freaked out i know vinyl mania charlie grapone would have freaked out with 150 yeah. cops we'd be like and what happens now if we get stuck with this? You know, I got a better story than that one too. When I, worked at the, when I worked at the hip house a year before, a lot uh, of follow me came out. I got the strictly promo. I loved it. I was like, this shit is gonna be a hit. I call that shit out. I ordered forty copies of that record. <laughs> I did maybe, ah, shit. I would say a year later, man, I have done three inventory runs. And every time I counted, there would be 38 copies in the bin. And my boss was like, dude, you need to send this shit back before we can't get return money from this. Right. Nobody wants to get stuck with stuff. And I was like, but this record's the bomb. It's just nobody's listening to it. And then, you know, I, I was hanging with Bill a lot. And sometimes I would bring records to Bill at his, at his house when he was making his mixes with B96 for the radio. I had played this record to Bill 10 times, bro. Okay? But this one night, he heard it. He played it. And I swear to God, the next day, kids ran to the store with cassette tapes. <laughs> I won this song. And what happened? All 38 copies were gone just like that, bro. The power of the DJ. I've said it before. I've said this on past shows. Tony Humphrey's playing your record 98.7 Kiss. People come in with the cassettes to bother Manny Lehman in New York. What's this record? Nobody knows. I know that. We know that feeling. Yo, Ralphie doing the same thing on B96 or Farley. Yeah. Known for that. They would be running a record. Not out yet. Can't get it. Where, what is this? We know what it is. Yeah. Yo, they used to put signs in store. Don't ask us for this record. Unless you have a bootleg, then we can talk. You know right. what I mean? Unless you got a booty. Right. Unless you got a booty. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's it, man. I mean, you know, that's the truth about my upbringing in this shit. It's like I, I started from from the bottom. There's only way to start. Yeah, man. (laughs) No, but even this week I posted, you know, I posted what made me the person and the DJ versus what made them, which is social media. Right. The Instagram, when it started with MySpace and it went to all the other crap onto TikTok. But wait, 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 wait. We're going to get there. Let's go on, because we haven't gotten to the pl- you taking your first flight to Europe yet. Wait, 
We're still yeah. talking about you working near Bill and being influenced on Bad Boy. So take us on the journey. Go ahead. So Strictly Calls, you signed the record. I, I fly to New York to meet Gladys at Strictly Office. I meet Barry, Gladys, everybody. I was so Barry impressed. G, right? Barry G? Yeah. I was so impressed by the office, by the guest, by the everything, man. I was like, this is a damn amazing record label. I was so impressed. You know, I was like, that's where I want to be someday. I put that mark up there. Mm -hmm. and, and after, you know, chopping it up with Gladys and we chose some stuff and took me to see Mark in this corner office. <laughs> and that was interesting. But we had, we had something in common. We both smoke weed. And at five o'clock, that man would time out, pull up his little drawer, put up his little drawer, his shit would be pre-rolled. And I'm talking about to that point, I never knew about white boy weed, all right? This shit was white boy weed. This shit was properly bomb, yo. So we smoked the fucking joint in the office at five o'clock. And I was like, I love this shit. I was really touched by that shit, man. You know, that's, those are real moments that people, some people will never have. And that's fine. I don't want them to, I don't want to have to explain that shit. But I you went can't explain that. that. That's a feeling you have at the moment. You know what I said the other day about like when you show up to a club and you give in that resident DJ who's your homie a test press of your shit and he sees you and at the right moment he drops your shit and the crowd goes fucking crazy. That was my Instagram moment. That was my TikTok. Right, nobody. Yeah, right, this is all. This is all before internet was even. You had a website. Forget about even yeah. social media. Keep going. Yeah. So you know what I mean? that's yeah. So strictly opens a lot more doors, and then Europe starts knocking, and I start signing records with a lot of German labels and all kinds of stuff. I mean, through I kind of skipped a bit. You know, my first international gig was actually Mexico City. My second biggest international gig was Tokyo, Japan. So I went from Mexico like six, seven months before that, 800 bucks to Japan, Shibuya, Tokyo, standing, flipping out, going, how the hell did I make it here? Like, am I tripping? Or am I standing in this corner with like 2,000 other Japanese people that look at me like I'm Godzilla and shit? You know what I mean? Because I was different. That moment there, co-signed my fucking career and said, from now on, all you got to do is make this music and DJ. And that's it. You don't have to work for nobody else. You know? So that gave me the, the green light. Like I, for me, it was opportunity, but I was ready. I had been training through years to get to the opportunity. And when the shit showed up, I was like, yeah, I'm going to bet on myself. Oh, hell yeah, I can do this shit. You know? When you know you're good, if you're a good chef, and you know you can fucking cook it and like show off, you're gonna have that confidence. I was there, man. I was there at a young age without you were ready. You were ready, bro. I remember how young you were. You were ready yeah. and you were ready to go. I had hair, I had my mustache. 
you know what I mean? Whatever, you know, I was just experiencing everything fresh and new. Everything was a new experience, man. So it's like, that's the shit that, those are the moments that kept me pushing forward. Keep going, keep going. And I, and I had a good career, man, doing whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. I took awesome gigs. I played Ministry of Sound when they opened. I played Cream when they opened. I played clubs when they were like at the heyday. And I would show up. I mean, dude, first time Ministry of Sound, Cyro. What year was that? What was the year that brought, they brought you Ministry? You remember? That would be 94. Yeah, Justin Berkman was the uh, resident still. Harvey was the side door. Small yeah, room. Harvey was playing side resident, right? In the Harvey, in, man. So well, that's when I like, rolled through there. And to see, big names in the big room. I was like, wow. And then like 10 years later, I was handling that room myself. Just, just being the most raw sneak you can be, bro. Like no holding back. This is vinyl days too. You know what I mean? This is when, when shit was due. That first, sorry, the ministry shit, not, not shortly after the first time, I went the second time with fucking Kashmir, Boo Williams, Spencer Kinsey, Gene Ferris. Now, I don't know if maybe Glenn Underground was there too. We all went to London to do a relief night at Ministry of Sound. And I saw the first time Kashmir put on a wig, green shit, and did his green velvet live. I saw his first live, bro. You know what did I mean? He you, did, he is, did he tell you guys he was going to do that? Or was just... Yeah, we knew because the preacher, man, but... We didn't know he was actually going costume. <laughs> he walked around London that day. We all went shopping and whatever, you know what I mean? And he he had a wig. He had like a, you know, kind of like a little bit of clown wig, fluorescent shit, you know, whatever. But he made a look and he had his glasses. He's like, green velvet. That's what it is, bro. That's wow. a green moment. You know what I'm saying? Those moments I have in my heart, bro. You don't forget that. I don't care how old you are. You never forget stuff like that. I know some people think I'm going crazy and whatever, but I'm saying my cup is so full of amazing things like that that I didn't, I, I didn't even remember those things until what's happened to me recently. Which Good. So keep going. We're gonna keep, I want to hear more. See, this, yeah. is, this is documented. People want to hear all this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I played London. I played everywhere in Europe and started doing doing the circles. The, the DJ that opened doors for me was Derek Carter. And sometimes we he's a bad, and he's a bad, badass DJ. He was, he's a he bad DJ from Chicago. They like, you know, broke in Europe. And, and if he played your, if he played the club, most likely you can play that gig a month later after he was there. You know what I mean? So he mm -hmm. opened a lot of doors for me and shit. And we, we smashed all over Europe, man. And that's those were the Hades of like, you know, 98, You Can't Hide From Your Butt comes out on Classic, which is Derek's label. Right. That that put a moment and and underground and 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 who I was as a producer, even though I've done many tracks by then. Did that mean a household name, Papa? That made yeah. record made you like took you from okay that sneak to oh that sneak yeah. that's yeah, but me, the shit was though that I got that 
in 95, when I went, when I signed with Strictly Shit, I also went that night, we went to Sam Factory Bar to see Louie, right? And it was our mom, me, Junior, Todd, like there was a group, Disciple, Dove, like all the underground, Benji. I mean, it was like, you know, Louis. I was there, I was there, and I know exactly when you came, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> I used to go every Wednesday. I would go see them yeah. all, I remember. I, you know, from Chicago, I didn't know that shit, and I, I thought it was like the, the most elite shit I've ever seen, underground elite, hanging out. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. Louis had gotten a copy of Show Me The Way. Ooh. And about an eight hour set, he dropped it five or six times that night. <laughs> you want to make a statement on your record, right? I mean, you know, when he loved some shit, he really, and he played Disco Erotica, the other one, Casual too. He knew I was there. And that's that respect. Oh, homie's here from Chicago. Let's give him some love. But five times, bro, <laughs> I was so geeked out. I was like, oh my God. Louis Vegas playing my shit right now. I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, that feeling, man, is like so amazing. Man. I told Louis that on the, on, the, on the True House Story show. I said, you don't understand. I, maybe you do know I told him, but I said, you broke a lot of people's, made a lot of people's careers happen because of you playing a record that was not signed yet or just starting. And all of a sudden, all of New York is on the record. And then not too far after, all of UK is all over the record. Because how, you can't records. That's how records were built before social media. That's how records were built before the internet. We we were playing from reel to reel to tape to acetate and test press white label shit. Had that chance to like you know build it up. So then when that record dropped, everybody went and bought it. That was their promo. That was our promo, dude. It was our bond and word that we had for this fucking music. Man. What? What do you mean bond and word? Explain that. See, they don't get that. What we mean when we say it's our bond and it's our word. You have to really clarify what that means. Okay. I'm 50. I don't know how old most people are here. <laughs> back, yeah. back in the hood, okay? You could be broke. You could be whatever in your lowest shit, but if your word was bond, people would help you. People would support you because you were a man of your word. If you said, I'm going to do this shit, you would do it. If I'm going to do this for you, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do my best for you. Not just do it because, oh, I owe you a favor. No, man, I'll give you a hundred percent sneak every time. You know, I did that shit with labels. I did that shit with producers. I did that with promoters, everything, man. Like, I gave them all because I was like, you know what? You're trying. You believe in me. Let's build something. Let's do a night together or whatever. I'm going to be the rest and build something together. And what happens if you didn't stay to your word in the hood? You know, because people do that now. You know, everybody, we even have a we even have people at the top of their level that tell you they're going to do something for you and they don't even come through. What happens back then when you didn't stay? Then that, then that so-called respect is just empty, man. There's no respect. You get no love. You get no love. And actually, when you start falling, people will kick you for being an asshole and shit. You know what I mean? Because people do it all the fucking time. It's real talk. Grow man shit. There's a code. There's ethics. 
there's things that, you know, you have to have passion for. And if you don't have that passion for it, then you shouldn't be doing it. You know, that's been my shit. I came from zero. I put my life to it. I de devoted my life to it. I said, I'm going to do this shit until I die. Okay. And I'm going to give it 100%. Yeah, and you have. Now, here's the thing. You're living a large lifestyle. I'm not going to say you're you Hefner, but I'm going to say, you know, you're traveling the world. Yeah. Your dream has come true. Yeah. Like a lot of us felt. Like we didn't never dream that we would ever do this like this. Okay? Travel, DJ, remix, everything. Make records. Hang. Yeah. To get, we used to laugh. To get paid to do what we loved anyway. Right or wrong? Right. When did it drop off for you? Like, or when did you say to yourself, shit, I don't like this where this is going? Before this episode, we're talking about EDM stars. Because I know for me, yeah. 2006, I saw the writing on the wall. And it was a real hard pill to accept that things were changing. Yeah. So what happened with you in your life on your road? Honestly, I mean, I kept rolling. And 2001 changed things. After the World Trade Center thing, that changed things. That that actually cleared a lot of the the people who were in it for the wrong reasons, and I left a big group of people who said, "No, we're still solid. We're going to continue on and do what we got to do." Um, around two thousand six, seven, the birth this bastard birth of fucking electro shit, electro came in <laughs> i know and i was like i was like you know i when i say electro i think detroit one atkins electro you know miami base electro not the shit that came out in Arthur baker electro exactly Arthur baker all, Breakers revenge know. all those were john john robbie 100%. all that a hundred percent you know what i mean that's real stuff not this other stuff that was like it it was made disposable. It was made disposable. It sounded disposable. It it blew up and made people money and careers that just for having one hit of some noisy ass shit. Anyway, at those times I I pulled back and I was like, nah, you know what? I'm not down with that shit. I I made a deal with NRK and I put out banging um back in the box which is, a, a, you know, back when you did mix CDs and compilations, which a lot of people probably don't even know about. But anyway, when you bought shit physical and you bought CDs, mix CDs, I did one. And uh, what it was, it was, I chose 40 of my signature sound records that define DJ Sneak and, you know, what I liked. It's supposed to be one mix, they made it two. I just mixed a whole thing and it was and it was live and they just chopped in the middle and made two mix CDs and then they put two CDs with all the tracks that I'd chosen. Which gave a lot of people uh, a light onto on onto uh, on a on a certain style of music that they probably you know escaped or didn't get or whatever. You know what I mean? While everybody's on the electro shit, there was this other shit happening and it was on the underground like always. We always figure out a way to maneuver our ways. And even though I was in the mainstream market with the UK, I maintained my underground status. You know what I mean? 
I play the big game when I need it. I grab the big remixes and big money. I shit, but I give them 110% sneak classics. Some of these records, some of my best shit was actually remixes that I, I didn't want to even give them out because they were so good. But I was like, damn, I don't have time to make another mix. So I'm going to have to give it to them and, and put it out and be like, ah. But then that made a difference too, man. People enjoyed a really good remix of, of something because I had a different take on it, you know? So, it was, so, cool. so was it records Interesting. that... So hang yeah. on. So was it records that were already sequenced in the computer and you're like, I'm traveling and I don't have time to like... Or you just put the thing no. together? How? I wasn't even in the computer shit yet, man. Like I, I messed a little bit with Cubase in, in their like early 2000s, but like I was still using my outboard gear. I was still using my 909 and my SP1200 and my IKS 950 and my Mackie 32A, which I have all here. My 808, my 303, my 707, my SH101. I got all this shit right here. This is what I used to make this. This is when my shit sounded crispy and good. You know what I mean? I, out of the box, out of the box. That's it, man. Yeah, I got into the computer shit a little bit later, and it, it took me two years to figure out how to get my swing back. Because I lost my swing for two years. I was like, what the hell? I would do it in the machine and then bring in the Cubase, and it would just completely mess up my shit until I figure it I out. I believe that. Some people told me over the years that when they sequenced in the SB12 or the or the MPC, they felt it was there was a swing feel to it, that the computer could not do it. I used it for a long time where I had my SP and it was all MIDI and I was using audio and MIDI together and sometimes they would lock perfectly but sometimes it was like you know impossible to get it man but anyway production blah 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 so I don't think I don't think you know through the years of that 2006 to maybe 2008 to 10 I actually did amazing. I did the most work. I had the most gigs. I made the most money in those years when house music wasn't even popular. That's right. Right around that time. Yeah. It was like, I, I went from big rooms to the smaller side rooms now, but I still had a crowd. So, you know, that counted for promoters and shit. And loyalty is everything. And so... I became somebody that like, they knew that if they brought me to their town in the city, I was going to fill up their place, you know, with a few other people later, too. We'll make a nice combo and shit will happen, you know? And then, you know, yeah. Then this other industry popped in. Which industry is this? The, 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 the digital cartel industry. <laughs> <laughs> the digital cartel, yes. I remember when that happened too. It was a major culture shock for everybody who was in analog business. Go ahead. Yeah. Talk about it. I mean, you know, first of all, I want to emphasize the that what I what I've been what I've been on and all this shit has come back to me because the great reset happened. I reset myself to the old sneak. Right? That was my great reset this past 2020, right? But within all that shit, I learned a bunch of stuff and I was like, I don't need this in my life. So I was like, cool, I'm going to 
I'm going to figure out what it is that I want to, how I want to keep going, you know? Um, lots of thought there, bro. And the digital cartel, what so, you yeah. want to do. So this horrible thing comes to town, like a, like a big tsunami. What happens? Yeah, I mean, what happens, everybody got pushed into it. What happened is you show up to a club with records and they will have CD players now. What happened, it was like completely forced on like a whole industry and an economy that was happening for years that actually paid the artists. The labels made money and actually paid the artists. You know what I mean? It was mm -hmm. like they they fooled everybody into going into this digital website shit and be like, I could be your online distribution store for the whole world. And don't worry, you're going to market you and make you a big star and all that bullshit. When in reality, you put your shit there and you just keep them alive and they never pay back. And but I'm not going to... Wait, 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 wait. Before we even get to that part. Yeah. Because something happened pre to that. There was this thing with Facebook began in MySpace and they were telling us that you have to have followers, if I remember correctly. You have to have a social media presence. You remember that? Before we were discussing about putting out digital records. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, yeah, that's, part of it. that's part of it, too, because that... that Magazines is, were there. It went from MySpace being uh, very organic and simple, being able to promote yourself as an artist or say, you know, have four tracks. I'm going to put my four tracks in my picture and, you know, send messages. It was cool. That all evolved to then Facebook taking over. And when Facebook started, I guess it was cooler. You know what I mean? But then like everything, man, it got corrupt. It got corrupt and it, it became a money-making machine for somebody else. And, and it's very anti-artist, actually. Anyway, Facebook, Twitter, all these fucking things start popping up, you know? I'm in this industry working. And I'm seeing changes constantly. Quickly, too, and quickly. You know, all these promo press companies, all these marketing companies, all these people pitching me like, hey, you want to get followers? Fuck with us. You know, hey, we can get you this. We can get you more views. We can now it's like, what the hell is going on? You know, it became a thing of like numbers at this point. Less about art, talent, or passion. It was all business and numbers at this point. So between all that shit and trying to survive, I dump, I dive into Twitter. I dive into fucking Facebook. I start using their means to get word out. I build more shit. I get more people attracted to all the stuff. But then it becomes a monster. And then it controls you. And, and between being somewhere where I wasn't feeling like I needed to be or wasn't welcome many times, um, feeling like I'm the older dude while these 20-something-year-old kids are coming up and making $20 million a year for fucking doing nothing because everything's prepackaged for them. You know what I mean? They're just the face. They're a product. You know what I mean? We all know what happened to Avicii. Yeah, I never knew personally, you know what I mean? But I mean, that's the pressure 
of being somewhere and being pushed to a limit because you have a 360 deal because all these managers and things were like, yeah, boom, beam, bam, bam, 360. We all take, you just keep going. You're sick. We don't care. Keep going. You're dying. Oh shit. Hold on. Let me put you. Don't worry about it. No, 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 no. Get him a drink. He's okay. He'll be all right. (laughs) You don't take this pill, take a line, take whatever. Keep going, you know? So it became really, it became a really distorted scene that I I really started feeling uncomfortable, man. And 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 then I started lashing out through the memes. That's when I became a different person online. That's when everybody was wondering why that happened. What was the reason for that? What I mean, was it, was, that? it was like because I felt that all the shit that that not only I worked to get to. But the people before me was being completely shit on by all this new generation of nobodies, products, you know, made up like formulas and shit. You know what I mean? Like, listen, the first formula was Tiesto. After that, they modified that formula and broke it into, man, different sections of how to make money within the industry, become these superstar DJs with outrageous fees and jets and all this stupid shit that you just be like, when, when did it become that, you know? And I was constantly there, man. I did 25 years in a visa where I didn't miss a summer. You know, that island took me in and I took it in and we've been friends for a long time. So let me just say this to everybody out there. The first one I remember, I got his private jet. I have to give him, he passed away, it was Eric Murillo, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So Eric Murillo set the tone of what was to come for the DJs. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was jet setting all over. He had his own private jet. He, it was, he had a residency with the Subliminal Night. And I remember you played for him as well. Cool. Um, and, and Subliminal was a, a big brand and Strictly was with him as well on that. So as much as we may, you know, some hate on Eric Murillo, we're not here to hate, but I just want to make a, a course correction that he set that tone for what was to come. Tiesto and Eric, I'm going to say, you know, David Morales did his thing, we begged the dead thing. Right. They all had, you know, I would say high level situations. Everybody did, but that guy made it clear because I remember pulling into the airport, I would see some Eric's jet. Yeah, it was like that. It it became like a like lifestyle rich and famous. It wasn't about music anymore. It was it became a bastardized version of like they used that they used the industry that we built and they jumped on our back to create some shit that was completely fake and phony. And it's been happening. And now even the techno guys have all played that same fucking game all these berlins all these europeans they're all playing they all pay for likes they all come on man you know you can just you can't come up out of somewhere and within three years half a million and a half people unless you're cheating unless you're paying for shit you know what i mean and it's just like because that's how we all started to wonder for a moment there you know it was like wait a second you are nobody have no background and all of a sudden you got a million followers you have not when a record we, out that's made when we when we started it wasn't about followers it was about how many people bought our record our CDs our tapes that's what it was it was true fans who loved the real shit it wasn't this made up Mickey Mouse Walt Disney 
disposable music, disposable artists, disposable DJs, disposable everything made up by social media, you know, manipulated by social media. These people work on your emotions, bro. They know your shit. They track you. They know how to make you feel a certain way. They will put shit on my feed to set me off. And I caught on to that shit. They would purposely go out of their way to just slag you, right? Yeah. You know, not only that, but then it became a thing where I was so controversial or whatever. I mean, I took on Swedish Mafia and I called them out for being phonies. I had multiple battles with people online, but it wasn't really battles, man. It was just like a fact. I'm like, dude, we played a festival. I saw you. Your shit was unplugged. And there you are on stage faking the shit like you're fucking DJing. Come wait, on, a, wait a minute. Wait, 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 let me understand this clearly. Wait, because I know you know how to play music, okay? So you're sitting on the side. I know you got a beard, you got a split in your hand, and you're looking. You ain't high yet enough not to notice that the shit ain't on, right? Did you walk up to it to look at it and go, you got to be kidding me? Multiple times, bro. You couldn't believe it, right? Yeah, and even if it was, like, on or plugged in, there was nothing. It was all coming from the, from the main board. It was all connected to the pyrotechnics. No, what would you would have said to the boys from home? You would have said, this is bullshit, right? You'd be like, come on, what are you kidding me? This is like, you know, th- before I popped off on them, I, that was like a tour where I was in Australia, man. We did all these dates, and, and it was only one of them. It was Sebastian Grosso was there. And, bro, I even go further back with that dude. Not through him. I never even knew who he was. But his dad owned a label called Plum plum music or something from Sweden. I play so many good house records from that shit. Mm-hmm. The Swedish do make good house music. Right. These kids, even though they came under that same umbrella, they chose to go pop. And that's fine. They didn't belong in the DJ world. They should have said, we're pop artists. Uh, yeah. And, uh, we <laughs> We'll figure something out. We can't stand behind turntables because fucking whatever. Ain't whatever. They know how to DJ too. I'm not fucking stupid. You know what I mean? They know how to DJ, but sometimes it's a show. It's a show like like the show in the Super Bowl mid shit. That shit's all pre-recorded, whatever. Nobody's singing live, dude. You know what I mean? It's like, come on, dude. It's American Bands all- every week. It was the same thing. You, you could see they were lip syncing. It was just the way it was. They didn't want you to play the instruments. Lip syncing became DJs fucking doing that shit. So you mean the air thing and the hands in the air with the pyrotechnics is all part of the big show? I'm guilty, dude. I used to work at a at a at an establishment there in Visa, very famous, and and I made my money. And their night that I used to play was more underground techno house, whatever. But the other six nights were EDM, and I saw firsthand how fucking disgusting that shit was. But it was money. It was money. It's what paid those people's salaries. For a year. Jobs. <laughs> all this shit. I know. Like, it, it was business. You know, it was business. It's just like, once you realize all these fucking things and you have a choice, man, you can make the choice whether you want to be there or not. I'm making a choice now 
and hopefully not jump in a, too ahead in a conversation, but I'm making that choice to remove We're going to get to that choice. We're going to get to that choice. No, don't let that choice out yet. We're not there yet. We're still, we're still in the mid-2000s. We're not there. Right. We're living your life. No, no, no. Yeah. Don't go there yet. People, tell them. Slow yeah. down, Sosa. Slow <laughs> it down. Sperate. Yeah. Slow it down. So wait. Okay. Yeah. So, so is that decent? Well, you know, it's just, it's, wait, 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 hold it. 